0: Welcome to Ergasia, a podcast of work, faith, theology and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to Ergosia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. Firstly, an apology and a word of explanation. I know a certain amount of time has elapsed since the last episode went to air. This was due in large part to the disruption caused by me having to change congregations, the advent of the busy Christmas season, and other issues related to my life as a minister. Since I produce Ercasia on my own time, and not as an officially supported or recognised part of my ministry, there are times when this podcast has to take a back seat to me being a minister. That's not how I would prefer things to be. For me, this podcast is as intimately a part of my ministry as any other aspect of what I do as an ordained minister. But unfortunately, unless something changes, This is how things will be for the foreseeable future. And so I ask for your patience and understanding and offer my apologies in the meantime. In this episode, we continue our exploration of the book Hard Work Never Killed Anyone. How the idolization of work sustains this deadly lie by John Bottomley, published by Morningstar Publishing in 2015. In the last episode, having previously charted Bottomley's account of how modernity developed its beliefs about work, and having likewise examined Bottomley's contention that it is in the silencing of the victims of modernity's beliefs about work that we can discern a clue about the real relationship between work and humanity, we began the exploration of Bottomley's response to the reality of work-related harm. For Bottomley, that response is contained within a prophetic ministry whose function is not merely to critique the structures of injustice and oppression at work, but also to listen and give voice to those who suffer under their tyranny. In this episode, we take a look at Bottomley's analysis of how the idolatry of hard work silences grief in the wake of work-related harm. We look at how victims of harm are robbed of their agency, not just by the traumatic event itself, but by the underlying assumptions that govern modernity's response to trauma. And we examine how Bottomley's own experience of ministry in this field helped him to uncover the mechanisms of silencing, and how a response enabling new possibilities in life might be forthcoming. So, without any further ado, let us now begin Ergasia episode 22, Hard Work Never Killed Anyone Part 4, Creating Victims, Silencing Grief After Work-Related Trauma. Bottomley begins with the assertion that the experience of grief and trauma is fundamentally at odds with God's desire for the world. On the contrary, God's desire is for healing, justice and reconciliation. A desire that is sparked by the cry for justice made by those who are captive to grief and despair. Thus the experience of grieving by the victims of work-related harm is never beyond God's desire for solidarity and renewal, and thus falls entirely within the orbit of the church's ministry to the world. Bottomley notes that one of the realities besetting the victims of injustice is the experience of powerlessness, inasmuch as it represents the experience of an event over which the victim has had little or no control but this interior experience is contrary to modernity's narrative of the public-private divide. There is no space in the world of cause-and-effect rationality for allegedly private feelings such as powerlessness. Victims of work-related harm are thus required to assume a number of self-discrediting definitions in order to explain their experience, that they are at fault, That they are worthless, that they deserved what happened to them. Thus the idolatry of hard work offers an explanation for injustice that blames the victim by providing them with a number of self-deprecating beliefs about themselves and their experience. Consequently, victim's shattered sense of self is often pathologized by the application of diagnostic labels that not only affirm the victim's negative sense of self, they also separate the victim from the victimizing event. This occurs because the pathologizing process effectively disappears the victim from the victimizing event, replacing them as a human reality with diagnostic labels representative of observable symptoms deemed to be interior to the victim themselves. In other words, the reality of the injustice which caused the trauma in the first place is replaced by a diagnosis whose characteristics become the primary focus of attention. The pathologizing process literally becomes a case of treating the symptoms rather than the cause. The injustice of the public act of work-related harm is replaced by a response to the victims of that injustice which labels them as sick while the unjust act is sanitized by rational cause and effect explanation. The cry for justice from grieving families and co-workers is silenced because grief and justice claims are labeled illness. In the wake of this process of silencing, Bottomley notes that many support groups for the victims of work-related harm assume that the effects of that harm can be overcome if the victims themselves embrace the idolatry by which they have been harmed. In other words, that they can save themselves by plunging headlong into the collective hard work of engaging in the kind of activism and mutual support that enables them to regain a sense of control, reduce feelings of vulnerability, and reestablish belief in an orderly, comprehensible world. In this way, they are able to reassert the dominance of the rational, explainable public world in which they are themselves a self-realising participant over the interior, fractured and irrational private world of emotions and feelings in which they are powerless and anonymous. Bottomley observes that part of this process involves giving participants a sense of purpose and order by blaming others for their suffering. This purpose through blame in turn encourages attempts to regain control over their lives by making a difference. For example, by lobbying for strengthened OH and S laws or providing support services to others. The problem, however, is that the embrace of dualism which this involves, the reasserting of the empowering rational self-understanding, over the disempowering emotional self-understanding, is that it continues to alienate the victims of injustice from the victimizing event. Not only do victims of injustice remain defined as such, they are blinded to their re-co-option by the idolatry of hard work. In essence, the spiritual problem of injustice remains unaddressed. This represents a profound contradiction lying at the heart of many support groups approach to the victims of injustice. Their assumption that they can provide a safe space for victims from which they can plan their oppositional activism to a hostile world reinforces the participants private emotional self understanding as victims. At the same time, the dependence of identity upon blame results in the unending enlargement of the public circle of victimizing forces to be identified and overcome. As the necessity for activism grows ever greater, the gap between the victim and the victimizing event grows ever wider. The idolatry of hard work appropriates their experience of injustice and suffering, to remake them into the likeness and image of the self-realising individual of which modern society approves, even when, by their own efforts, they are unable to overcome the duality at the heart of the idolatry itself. For bottomly, this contradiction at the heart of many support groups' approach is itself reflective of one of the core sins of modernity, the refusal of modernity's beliefs about work to acknowledge death's power to inflict grievous wounds on the human spirit. This stands in stark contrast to the prophetic ministry which Bottomley himself has come to embrace, which confronts society with the deaths of which the powers that be do not want acknowledged. The support group approach, however, embraces and is co-opted by the claim that the social order is fair and just so long as the individual themselves has the strength of character to ensure justice is done. This refusal occurs precisely because the approach adopted by many support groups reframes victims' grief, so that the focus shifts away from the bereaved person's encounter with death and their anger in the face of the injustice which caused this death, to their loss of a loved one. Loss, in these circumstances, refers only to the emotional experience of the absence of another. By focusing on loss, the reality and impact of death on an individual is minimized or ignored. Thus grieving people are encouraged to adjust to their loss in order to achieve closure and move on. This treatment of grief as only an emotional experience often leaves people isolated and alone with their grief. But this approach also hides the true nature of the injustice that is the source of grief in the first instance. By denying the reality and impact of death and the anger it causes, by shifting the focus away from grief experienced in the face of death grief as nothing more than the emotional experience of loss, profound spiritual wounds are often inflicted upon the victims of work-related harm. The scriptural witness attests to the fact that anger and lament in the face of injustice resides within the heart of God's desire for healing and renewal, and for human beings made in the likeness and image of God, This same anger is an inherent part of our response to injustice's many manifestations. Thus it is that the dismissal of anger and grief in the face of work-related injustice is felt by many as a further form of victimisation by an unjust world. This is especially the case when this victimisation is caused by systems that are supposed to care for and deliver justice to the victims of injustice. Anger is therefore part of God's gift to humanity in the face of injustice. It is an energy that enables us to marshal our resources to resist the harm done by the structures of unjust power. Anger also enables humans to defend their vulnerability from further violation. However, when anger in response to injustice is dismissed or minimised, it can grow in size and strength, not only losing contact with the vulnerable humanity it is protecting, but also increasing our perception that we are surrounded by ever more sources of harm. This spiritual dynamic can often lead to the victims of injustice feeling stuck in their despair and grief their hostile feelings toward the world begin to mirror the impersonal and violent forces that inflicted the initial injustice upon them. It was from attending to these previously denied and hidden emotions that Bottomley discovered the source of his own healing. He discovered that it wasn't an affront to God for humans to experience feelings of powerlessness and vulnerability, and that... Contrary to his cultural conditioning, these were not the signs of weakness. This realization helped Bottomley understand that too often, grieving people are forced to isolate their grief in order to fit in with modernity's narrative of the autonomous, self-realizing individual, a self-division that often made them unwell. In 1990, Bottomley undertook research on modern grief rituals. He discovered that many grieving people experienced the continued presence of their deceased loved one, whether through dreams, or upon hearing a piece of music, or even in a face glimpsed in a crowd. After making these disclosures, many people expressed the fear that they were suffering from some form of mental illness. The experience of glimpsing an unseen reality frightened people who were conditioned to thinking about the world only in terms of the scientific rational worldview, which declared that death is the end of life and breaks the association between individuals. These disclosures confirmed something Bottomley had already experienced through his training as a social researcher that from the perspective of social science, it is grieving people who initiate remembrance of the dead. They visit grave sites, they create sacred spaces for the memorialization of the dead, they undertake activities such as the production of memory books. This in turn enables the experiences of grieving people to be explained away as a product of their human effort. Thus the idea of continuing bonds between a deceased person and a grieving loved one is reduced by the scientific rational worldview of the social sciences to a manifestation of the initiative and imagination of self-realising individuals. At the same time it sustains the idea of people undertaking hard work in order to maintain connections with the dead. The witness of the Christian faith, however, has long declared that the boundary between life and death has been transcended by God's initiative in Christ. Instead of reducing the experience of continuing bonds to the realm of private initiative, the Christian witness frames such bonds as a public reality in which the pain of death is healed through the gift of God's love. In other words, The sense of continuing bonds is a manifestation of God's solidarity with suffering humanity, one which joins the kingdom of God to the reality of what it means to be human, transforming our sense of powerlessness and lostness to one of restoration to fullness of life. What this indicates is that the idea of loss and its associated reduction of continuing bonds To the initiative of grieving individuals is a way in which modernity can avoid speaking about the painful reality of death, especially when death is linked to the injustice of work-related harm. It also functions as a means by which we can deny the mystery of love and the possibility of new life, or at least reduce them to the realm of private experience, rather than have them uncomfortably intrude into the public world of work. The witness of the Christian faith, however, not only transcends this inhuman division, it enables a new non-judgmental understanding of grieving people's experience of continuing bonds with their deceased loved ones. It also enables an understanding of the spiritual dimension of grief, further resisting the impulse to reduce grief to an individualised experience of loss. Through the experience of ministering to people bereaved by work-related harm, Bottomley discovered that the support group model operates on the basis of three key assumptions. Two of these assumptions are that participants will have a common problem and that they will be willing to share their personal experiences at support group meetings. Bottomley and his colleagues discovered, however, that the people to whom they were ministering had more diverse problems than the support group model anticipated. While they came to the program because of their bereavement by a work-related death, beneath this experience often lay the memories and impact of other traumatic events. Likewise, participation in meetings only occurred over time as people developed a bond of trust with those facilitating the meetings. Consequently, the grief experienced through earlier trauma was not necessarily readily shared in the group setting and only often came to the surface through personal interaction between the facilitator and the individual participant. Bottomley and his colleagues found that this was especially true in the case of bereavement caused by a work-related suicide. The idea of loss in these circumstances has the effect of sanitizing realities that ought to be properly described as unjust or even evil. The presence of injustice and evil in such circumstances invokes the prophetic voice of lament, which, unlike the psychological concept of loss, is voiced in the public realm in times of injustice, suffering, and death. It is voiced in the trust that God will hear those who cry out and will be present to them in their suffering in order to help them shape a new future. This is a lament whose cry for justice is never shut down by the claims of other powers or beliefs about human life. The third assumption under which the support group model operates is that the group itself is controlled by its members, not by external professionals. This assumption, however, creates an unhelpful dualism between the members, each of whom is assumed to have a common problem about which they will be willing to speak in group sessions, and the professionals who are assumed to be emotionally distant from the problems shared by the participants. Bottomley and his colleagues, however, discovered that this dualism can trap support group members in a relationship with the participating professionals in which they self-identify as dependent victims, while the professionals are trapped into detaching from their own emotional realities in order to provide objective counseling and support. It was only after evolving the companioning support model that Bottomley and his colleagues were able to transform the dualism underpinning the self-helpism of the support group movement into an integrated understanding of themselves as wounded healers. This was illustrated by the experience of one of Bottomley's colleagues who came into the original support program as a participant having lost her son seven years previously to a workplace accident. When the original program collapsed, she stayed on as a volunteer to assist with communicating with other bereaved families. After 18 months as a volunteer, which included supervised development and training as a grief support worker, she was appointed to the role of coordinator of the grief support program. After two years in this role, the coordinator observed that her own feelings of sorrow and loss rarely arose during the course of her work. She seemed more focused on listening to what her bereaved clients had to say, her own feelings rarely demanding her attention or requiring mention in the course of her work. The movement toward a new freedom is often rendered invisible by the support group model's focus, on psychological and sociological data, but how this very transformation occurred is crucial to the future of any grief support program. In the Gospel according to John, Jesus utilizes the image of the Good Shepherd drawn from the words of the prophet Ezekiel to illustrate God's love for humankind, which involves tending to every facet of human life. In doing so, Jesus depicts himself as the fulfiller of God's work, a work that involves Jesus laying down his own life in order to care for others. In the same way, the coordinator of the grief support program discovered that, through her care for others, she was able to lay down her identity as a grieving victim in order to respond to others bereaved by a work-related death she was able to lay down the feelings that sat at the heart of her identity as a victim, not because she had ceased to be bereaved, but because the wounding she had experienced through grief was no longer the sustaining principle of her self-understanding as a human being. In other words, she was free to let go of the identity, that of a grieving parent, that had established her role in the world As a consequence of her son's death. This is the very love and acceptance of God that Jesus illustrates through his parable of the Good Shepherd. The freedom that comes from setting aside one's own being enabled the coordinator to focus her energies in solidarity with the suffering of others. This process of transformation enabled the coordinator to understand that her experience of grief had frozen her in a fixed relationship with her deceased son. But the healing that comes from an accepting solidarity with the grief of others enabled the coordinator to lay down the identity that held her in her frozen relationship. A space grew in her heart whereby she was able to experience the intimate knowledge of her son's ongoing presence in her life. A presence that instead of shackling her to a grief-stricken past enabled her to discern new energies and new possibilities for life. The intimacy created by this new knowledge of her son's ongoing presence brought the coordinator into the full fruitfulness of God's healing love. The fundamental reality underscored by this experience is that the companioning model of grief support is not a programmatic response to either grief or death. Rather, it is a prayerfully nurtured practice undertaken by the very people who companion others in their bereavement. Knowing the truth about the mutuality between others needs and our own brings a valuable reimagining of what it means to provide grief support. It becomes the prophetic ministry of wounded healers that also invites a reimagining of the wider church's pastoral ministry. And on that basis, it provides the stimulus to undertake a reconsideration of the Christian tradition's theology of hospitality. And that's where we leave this episode of Ergasia. In our next episode we will follow Bottomley as he examines the church's theology and practice of hospitality and how this tradition both informs and is critiqued by his and his colleagues experience in developing the companioning model of pastoral care. In the meantime to leave your thoughts about this podcast or to offer any suggestions or ideas for future subjects please go to the webpage at www.ergassier.podbean.com or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. I hope to have the pleasure of your company for the next episode. I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of faith, work, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.